There's no way around it. Caring for a loved one with dementia is not for the faint of heart. We don't know what we don't know, and many families focus so much on the person with dementia that they forget to keep their eyes on the family member managing care, which can be catastrophic. In this podcast, we'll help you become more proactive and remind you to focus on yourself. We will share challenges and wins and guidance from professionals at every step in the journey of caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's and other dementias. Welcome to the Eye on the Caregiver podcast. We're super excited to have Kay Conklin with us today. Kay is passionate about helping people who have caregiver responsibility dare to live their own lives. As CEO of Facilitator on Fire, she combines her work of leadership and life coaching for caregivers with engaging books and podcasts. Thanks for joining us, Kay. Oh, Sean, it's just great to be here with you and Michelle today. Thanks so much for inviting me. Kay, I was first introduced to you by Dr. Brittany Lamb when the two of you were doing a live stream conversation on caregiving. I was doing a little bit of multitasking as I was listening until you said something that stopped me in my tracks. You mentioned human giver syndrome. This was not a term or phrase I had heard of. And after the live stream, I think I spent a solid two hours going down the rabbit hole to educate myself on this. Sean and I would really love to debunk some of the myths about human giver syndrome. But before we do, can you explain to our listeners what human giver syndrome is? Yeah, I, I'm thrilled to do that. And I, I want to let you know, uh, your listeners may not know, I am also an unpaid family caregiver. My mom is 82, almost 83, and lives next door to us here on our property. We have about five acres, and she lives in what we call a granny flat. So there, there is uh, the garage separates us from her house, but she does have her own separate residence. So I'm in the middle of being a family caregiver every day. I started really researching what it would mean to become a, f- a family caregiver way back in 2010, Uh, And then my husband and I moved to be next door to my mom and dad in 2012. So we had been looking at becoming caregivers for a long time. The term human giver syndrome actually was first used and it was either 2017 or 2018. So it's only been a few years. I didn't go into this understanding what human giver syndrome was either, But the first time I read about it, and I read about it in Kate Mann's book. Uh, Kate Mann is a moral philosopher. She is a wonderful writer. And she had a book that came out, I think it was 2017. That was the first time I saw the term. And I was gobsmacked. I felt like I had been absolutely kicked in the chest and thrown on the floor because I suddenly realized this is like the air we breathe. We don't even know this is going on. So let me tell you what it is. Human giver syndrome is an ancient set of beliefs. It goes back thousands of years. And what it tells us is that there are some people whose existence is meant to care for other people to give everything that we have, to pour out everything that we have so that the people around us can thrive. I've seen this play out in my own life uh, as a mother, certainly. I see that less now. My older son is 20. That certainly uh, was much more prevalent in terms of the experience of being a mother uh, back when he was first born. 
thank goodness that seems to have faded now. But of course, now it's been taken over by my duties as a family caregiver, where people really believe that that ought to be my first concern at all times. So with human giver syndrome, what happens is we are taught, and I am telling you that we are taught from the time we're tiny people, that there are some of us whose job it is to make other people's lives more convenient and easier, and that we should function for them to make their lives better. So we should take care of their emotional health. We should take care of their physical health. Uh, we should make sure to cook their favorite foods, make sure they get into the best schools, uh, and that it is literally our job to take care of them. And that's what it means to be a human giver. Um, now, in Kate Mann's work, she also talks about that there are two kinds of people, human givers and then human beings. And human beings would be the people who receive the care. Um, I don't necessarily think things are quite as black and white as that. I think, you know, I, I like to look at this in a little more nuanced way, but I think it's really striking to think in terms of that stark contrast between someone who is a giver and then someone who is a liver, a being, somebody who gets to be simply because there are people like us uh, who give and give and give. And, and I want to let anybody listening to this know, human giver syndrome is not a condemnation. It is not something that we chose. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with us. It is a designation that has been placed on us by other people in our culture. So if you hear the term human giver syndrome, it's not a medical diagnosis. It's not a mental health diagnosis. It's not a diagnosis in terms of something that's wrong with you. I think this is something that's wrong with society. It's a structural defect in the way that things have been built. And those of us who do caregiving in any way, uh, we're the ones who really feel the effects of it. So this is super interesting. When you talk, I mean, we talk about this in the context of Alzheimer's and dementia for, of our, course. for what we do in our focus. Right. But does this human giver concept, is it just spread across society? I mean, my Michelle's daughter is a nurse. My daughter is in college to become a nurse. Um, are they human givers? I mean, are they just kind of wired to do things and work in taking care of people that I, I I'm so appreciate that there's people like that in the world because I'm not a, I'm not one that could be a nurse, you know? Um, does that definition include all that? I mean, does it include... Yeah, it does. It does. Like but let's let's separate this out a little bit further. And let me tell you, by the way, and I say this quite a lot in, my, in on my own podcast. I myself am not a nurturer. I don't think, except for the fact that I'm the oldest daughter, that I'm anybody that any person would ever tap and say, "Oh, she's going to be the nurturer in the family." That's just not how I've ever been, uh, and I'm totally fine with that. My kids would laugh if they heard this because they would totally agree. Um, so let's break up human giver sy syndrome just a little bit further. There's the human giver syndrome, but then there's also what I like to talk about as the human giver system. And that is this larger economy that is built on people being human givers. Now, it can be in a family system, which is really what we're talking about for the most part with, with dementia care, right? That's going to be in a family system. 
but this can also be in a business system. And that's where we talk about people like the nurses uh, and anybody else who is a, what we would call a paid caregiver, somebody who does that for a living. Um, and in that case, it is it really is a system where that entire economy only works because there are people who fill that role of being a giver. Now, you know, nurses get paid for being a giver. I'm not saying they get paid enough. I think there are a lot of problems with our healthcare system. Uh, when we're talking about family systems and unpaid caregivers, that's a whole different kind of problem. And it's a little bit different kind of a giver. That's why I say this isn't so black and white, because those of us who are in the family systems as the givers, there are whole kinds, whole sets of family traditions and family dynamics that can only survive and go on to the next generation because we fill this giver role and we allow other people in our families to go about having their roles. And if you look at family dynamics, it's stuff like, oh, there's always the black sheep. And oh, there's the oldest son who gets everything. And oh, that you know, everybody's got these family dynamics. One of the things that we don't talk about much is that we have this expectation that there will be often women, uh, who take care of everybody else. Um, so the nursing is, I think, a paid version of human giver syndrome. And I think that's where we see, especially during the pandemic, we have really seen boundaries dissolve about what nurses and other healthcare providers are supposed to take <laughs> from patients and and in the world of medicine they're not supposed to speak up and you know they're they're supposed to work these really really horrible shifts and the reason that's okay is because we do have this really underlying belief that really is underneath of everything that it's okay to ask people to do that that it's okay to completely drain some people so that other people can benefit. It really is underneath of everything. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating um, because, you know, uh, my daughter, my other daughter, I have three daughters, um, her best friend is a nurse, graduated and now working in a trauma unit and um, has really been struggling emotionally, you know, with what she's dealing with and the long hours and the stress and just what she's seeing. And, you know, yeah, we, these, this, the support system, you know, has to be there. And I think that's kind of where we're, we're leading to, right? Is, is the support system out there for human givers? And then if we start moving into the unpaid family caregiver space, how do we provide that support? Like, how do we, how do we help people that are dealing with exactly what you just said, the black sheep, the oldest son, the, you know, the deniers and things like that. And all that goes into the day by day. And and that's really when we started the foundation, that's what we focused on because we just realized that there's so much attention being given to research and clinical trials and advocacy, which is all critical. We totally agree. Um, but the people that are in working 24 hours a day as unpaid family caregivers, you know, and the stress mm -hmm. and the loneliness and the conflicts and the, it, it's, that's where, you know, we just see such a gap. So, um, so this is fascinating. Now I know why Michelle went down the rabbit hole for like two hours. 
Um, it's, it's amazing, so, right, that it's only just in the last few years that we finally have a term to describe something that's been going on literally as long as we have recorded history. <laughs> I mean, if you look at pharaohs who expected their concubines to be killed and go to the grave with them, you know, that is a literal human giver right there, someone who gives everything for the benefit of somebody else. So this is this is as long as as long as history goes back. Yeah, very interesting. So let's let's kind of shift a little bit. Let's have a little bit of I don't want to say fun, but um, banter on this because I think there's a lot of myth around human giver syndrome, right? So what I th- what we thought might be interesting is this. Let's kind of like talk about some of the myths and let's kind of debunk them. So, um, like you know, one of the first myths I think are out there is that a human caregiver, so you should be strong enough to manage everything by yourself without relying on other people or asking for help. I yeah, big myth, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's dreadful to feel that way. That's a that's a kind of pressure that nobody should have to feel. But I know that the vast majority of family caregivers have felt that at one time or another. What's going on here is this particular myth really makes everybody else's life more convenient. If we givers believe in our core that we, quote unquote, should be strong enough to manage everything, nobody else has to worry about us. Nobody else has to bother. And this belief that we should be strong enough, it keeps us from getting the help that we need. It keeps our focus on other people. Uh, and so we don't get the care that we need. We don't get mental health care. We don't get physical health care. We don't ask for community. We become isolated and extremely lonely because the flip side of this, you, you should be strong enough to do everything else. And I hate this. On the other side of that, of course, is this idea that if you admit that you need help, that you're weak. Instead of, if you need help, guess what? You're human. It's shame on you for needing help. You're weak. Uh, And that is a belief that very conveniently gets us to keep tricking ourselves to stay in this spot where we don't ask for help, which just makes everything easier for everybody else. Oh, absolutely. Is this this uh, also a sense of pride or... Because I, I see that in, I see that with my kids, right? So I see them, you know, graduating college and trying to find a job. And, and I'm like, hey, I can help. Like, no, 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 I got it. I got it. And what I try to explain to them is that really nobody's successful by themselves. Everybody, you know, we only get ahead by working together. And, and, um, and I think there's a sense of pride there. So do you see that? I mean, do you feel that way in the caregiver community that sometimes their own pride's kind of getting in the way too of, of I don't want to ask for help because, you know, I just feel like this is really my responsibility to do this. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's at least a, co- I mean, at least a couple of things going on there. There's a lot going on there, but the big two things that I see going on there, the first one is that a lot of us inherit that from our families that's what the generation before us did, or maybe the generations before us that we've heard stories about the strong woman, 
how strong grandma was, how strong mom always was, or people talk about how strong Aunt Sue is or whatever. So that is something that we hear and we think that that's the way it's always been done and that's the way we have to do it. And if that's the only thing that's ever been modeled for you, then you literally don't know to do anything else. The second thing I think is really going on there is that we have been taught that vulnerability is bad and that vulnerability is scary. Now, there is some psychological basis to this, human survival and all of that. I won't get into that today. Uh, But if anyone really wants to study vulnerability and how it actually is an asset, it's a really good thing and not a bad thing, uh, I would send them directly to the work of Brene Brown. She talks about vulnerability, uh, and I'm so glad that it's really starting to work its way into you know, the business world and everything else. As family caregivers, we have to be able to talk about what it's like to be vulnerable. Um, you know, part of what's going on here is that let's say you take mom or dad in for a doctor appointment, which is a pretty common scenario for somebody who is a family caregiver. I mean, it could be an auntie, it could be your child, whoever you're caring for, you know, that if you take them to the doctor, that you really have to put on this strong front so that people will pay attention to you and make sure that they answer your questions. So we're only showing them one side of what's going on. One of the things that I say to people is make sure you tell your healthcare providers and your parents' healthcare providers, anybody who needs to know this, say to them, when they say to you, they'll ask this question, is there anything else we should put in your record? Anything else that should go on your file? Say to them, I have family caregiver responsibilities. That is a vulnerable thing to say, but what that does is that signals to everyone that you could be a candidate for uh, any kind of mental health interventions, perhaps needing a mental health screening. Uh, They may start to ask you questions about what your family life is like, what your home life is like. They may start talking about other resources. So again, it does make you more vulnerable, and that is scary. And there's, there's a lot to deal with if that feeling of vulnerability is too much for you. And I always say to people, look, if anything that I say sounds scary to you, or or if you hear me use the term human giver syndrome or something really scary like vulnerability or boundaries, and, and you start to have a little bit of anxiety about that, that is totally normal. That's totally okay. That means it's a starting point for you. Um, that if you, you know, if you t- start to talk about boundaries and you get very anxious, okay, now we've identified something that's probably going to be important for you. Um, And when we talk about human giver syndrome, uh, we need to see that as a cue or a clue for those of us who have anything to do with family caregiving to really pay attention to the needs of the person who has those caregiver responsibilities. I think that's what sent me down the rabbit hole, right? You know, I think immediately I just could relate and I thought to myself, oh boy, she's talking about me. She is talking about me. I know, me Uh, too. I mean, if it feels like the finger is pointing at you, they're four pointing back at me uh, for sure. Because every time I talk about this, I think, oh my gosh, that's me. That's me. I I mean, I think it's, it's all of us actually, you know, I, I really do. And when you start talking about the generational part of that and the, and how it was done before us, we see that all the time. You know, we see that with the 
with spouses who are, you know, the caregiver is a spouse to someone with dementia and they want to do everything all by themselves because that's how their, their mother did it or that's how their grandmother did it. And they see it as their job, you know? So, um, okay, let's go to the next one. So uh, another myth would, would maybe the health and phys- physical well-being of the person we care for is far more important than our own and they should always come first. And I think we can kind of add on to that, you know, their life is shorter than ours. You know what I mean? They're, they're, they've got dementia. They're not going to get better. And so we can just suck it up. You know, we can just suck it up and make them first because that's what we should be doing. So for a lot of us, this is a family tradition. This is, this is something else that we inherited that the need of the person who is sicker, who is needier, that that is more important than our own needs. So I get where this comes from. Uh, I feel this myself. What we have to start relearning here is that that's not how humans work. So an individual human body, okay, Backing up just a little further, people who have family caregiver responsibilities, even in a very, very difficult situation, like somebody who has Alzheimer's that is very far advanced, that person with family caregiver responsibility still has the right to be a whole person, an individual person. We get to have our own needs, our own wants, our own preferences. We need eight hours of sleep. We need food. We need exercise. Our bodies are machines that need certain kinds of fuel in order to work. We don't get the choice to put that on hold when somebody is sicker than us. Okay, now when you're in a short term situation, you know, somebody is really sick, you've got a loved one in the hospital for a week. Okay, you can, you can not eat, not really sleep, not really get physical activity for a week, and you'll recover. Once we get to start talking about anything that's longer term, we really have to start remembering that every individual human machine is an individual human machine. You can't suck nutrients out of the air. You can't get physical activity by thinking about it. You can't get sleep by wishing for it. You can't get community, which is also a basic human need, um, by watching a television show, right? That's not a group of people. You can't get your basic needs met. So what we have to do is remember that, yes, that person who is very sick has their own individual needs, and they're a person, and they have rights, and they should be treated with dignity. The same thing goes for those of us who have family caregiver responsibilities. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I, you know, I, I just, I want to interject something here. You know, this whole idea of human giver syndrome, when it co- and I'm going to speak to myself, Nobody told me I have to do this. You know, nobody told me that that is my my lot in life. You know, it's I did it to myself. You know, and and I think there's like people please I'm I'm a people pleaser, right? And so I think mm-hmm. when your personality already is like a people pleaser personality and you are put into a role of a caregiver especially with family and people that you love, we do it to ourselves, you know, um, and, and that's, you know, okay. Right or so, wrong. I just think that that's, you know, so, sure. Society plays a role, you know, but I don't know that I ever really looked beyond the day to day. And that's what we find in our community. You know, as a caregiver to someone with dementia, 
you are thrown into this job and it becomes a full-time job because we allow it to? Is that Okay. I mean, so I yes, I, I, I hear where you're coming from, Michelle. And I really appreciate that perspective. And what I want you to know is that you're actually wrong. You have been hearing this your whole life. I have been hearing this my whole life. I mean, if you think about Hallmark holiday commercials, right, with the selfless mother who gets up at 3 a.m. to wrap presents, if you think about the, gosh, there are some memes that go around social media uh, having to do with the selfless caregiver. There's one I can think of. It just breaks my heart every time I see it. And the story goes that there's a woman who has cancer and so and they have a couple of little kids. So the husband calls her mom and mom comes to stay with them and to take care of her. And then mom gets cancer. And there's this picture of this woman crumpled, older woman crumpled on a kitchen floor. And the story that always goes along with this is, isn't she selfless? Every time I see this posted on social media, I post these words. This is not okay. It is not okay to expect people to be self-sacrificial. And another way that we learn this from the time we're tiny is I can remember being on the playground and I was probably four years old. And there was a little boy who I think he wanted to touch my corduroy pants. You know, child of the 70s, I had on corduroy pants. And I told him no. And somebody grabbed me and said, don't tell him no, you'll hurt his feelings. So we learn, some of us, from the time that we are teeny tiny, that we ought to do this, that good people sacrifice this way. So yes, we internalize it. Some of us become people pleasers. Some of us, like me, become perfectionists. We think there's only one right way to do something. But just because we internalize it, Michelle, it doesn't mean it's our fault. I want you to know that this is coming at you and it's coming at me from every angle. And I'm going to tell you that once, now that you've heard me say this, you're not going to be able to unhear it. You're going to start hearing and seeing these influences coming at you from all sides. The difference is once you have the knowledge, you can say, I have a choice. Am I still going to choose to believe that? Or am I today going to choose to remember that I'm an individual person? And even though society has designated designated me to be this human giver, Today, I'm going to choose to, to be an individual. And, and I'm going to ask for the people around me to honor that. I'm not saying that any of this is easy, but it makes such a difference to just remember that you have what I call personhood. You get to be a person too. Kay, we just have so much to talk about that we're going to pause this for today and carry this conversation over to next week's podcast. So we look forward to everyone joining us again next week.